It's time. Thank you for tuning in to The Force Report. I'm T.D. Arnold. My special guest today is going to be the legendary Grammy Award winning Patty Austin. Patty will be sharing her lifelong lessons in the music industry, her longtime friends she's carried along the years, as well as some things that you may not even know. Plus, we'll be sharing some of the music she's been doing throughout the years. So now, sit back and relax. It's time for The Force Report. Thank you for tuning in to The Force Report. I'm T.D. Arnold, and my special guest today on The Force Report is the legendary Grammy Award winning Patty Austin. Damn! I don't know what to say after all that. Buckle your seatbelts, folks. Because Patty takes the wheel. Coming soon to appear to near you. Introduction I've had in 45 years. That was oh. like old school intro. That's what I, that's what we do. Girl. That's what we do. I mean, <laughs> that's how I was trained. Yeah. Like a legend in my own mind and shit. I'm digging this. <laughs> Remember, I grew up with in radio with the at Howard University, you had the Melvin oh. Lindsay's. Oh. Donnie Simpsons. Come on. I mean, so those are the idols that I grew up on. I mean, it's like, you had to, you you couldn't just be like, ah, you know, like talking like this. You had to, you had to have that voice. Good evening. This is Tony. (laughs) I mean, hey, how you doing? You you had to, you really had to have some, some wake people up in the morning. I mean, if you're doing the, if you're doing this, if you did the quiet storm, this is TDR. You had to, you had to, you know, you had to make it work. (laughs) <laughs> you had to make it work. <laughs> you had to have the, your morning voice. And one time I was right. on a morning show and a night show. I had a pillow. I had pillow talk in the evening. This Please come on Peter now. Arnold with pillow talk. Come Give on now. Call. Come on now. I'm yeah. old. Woman. Do <laughs> <laughs> Got to lighten up on old women. We, we'll die real quick if it's too good. Woo! <laughs> Woo! You don't want to be responsible for the death of an old woman. Come hey, on. no, no, or, no. As you've described me, an old legend. No, old, no she's a nice old legend. She's a legend. I'm calling you. I got respect for you, woman. You got hey. to get old to become a legend, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, you, you just, I mean, come on. It's like that tree. It's like a tree takes a long time to make a decision. <laughs> Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Takes a long time. My mother had cancer. I was a teenager and I kind of went through it with her, but not completely because she was very much about pushing me away from whatever that was. Okay. But, but, um, but she beat it, you know? Awesome. Okay. Yeah. She, she was big on beating stuff that (laughs) came Uh, to get. Yes. Yes. Wow. Beat it back. Beat it back yeah. to hell. So, uh, so she had it at one point, and she beat beat cancer too as well. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And uh-huh. and she had um she had a very uh um experimental treatment actually. She was one of a very few number of women. Uh, she had cancer of the cervix that received what they called a radium insert. Hmm. And um, it's funny, when the whole COVID thing kicked in, I uh, related to uh, people talking about not being able to touch their family members, that they had to talk to them through glass, because while my mother uh, uh, had this radium insert, we were not allowed to see her. And it was inside her for, I guess, a week. So we would, my dad and I, the we was my dad and I would stand outside the window and, you know, and, and you can't scream at her too loud. We're in a hospital, right. <laughs> you know, so right. we would like send kisses and do hand signals and write notes. And, but yeah, it, it, it's, um, it's a tough thing. And I think a lot of what happens with cancer with people 
most of the people I know that have survived it just have incredible attitudes and um, get into a whole other kind of, in addition to, did you go through chemo at all? No, I had, pro well, I had prostate, so I had the seed implants and, um, right. and that did it. I mean, and I mean, if I could, it's been almost uh, 10 plus years. See, I was on my way to Rwanda and, and, and I was in my early 40s, I was young. And so the, my grandfather, he didn't beat it. My, his son didn't beat it. And then wow. I, and then I was on my way to Rwanda and my doctor's office called me back. I just left the office like two days before. It says, uh, Mr. Arnold, I said, well, my nurse accidentally ran a PSA on you and we're seeing the numbers are quite weird. Can you come back in the office? And I, so wow. I came back in the office and they said, he said, normally we don't run a PSA because it was an accidental for your age because I was real young. And so, right. uh, and so he did, he did another one that had me wait. And then the results came back. My levels were high. And, I, and so they sent me to a urologist and they did x-rays on me and found out I had um, prostate cancer. And so that's when they suggested several things. And I said, well, wow. So. Uh, so they said it's a slow moving cancer, but you're going to have right. to take care of it. I said, okay. So, so I was, uh, so I went to Rwanda and, and I'd forgotten about it. And he's, so he calls my office, like come back three months later. He's like, dude, where are you at? <laughs> I was like, you said, it, uh, well, you said it was a slow move. Well, I mean, not I, that slow. <laughs> I, these are questions my mother, I go back to my mother again, used to ask when somebody would say something to that, like, to her like that she would always say what is your concept of slow yes <laughs> let's you know be specific no really and, and you kind of have to do that when you're talking to doctors or just when you're talking in general right you know what do you mean by slow because your slow might be my might be my best and i'm going to start interviewing you now some more Oh, what God. the hell were you doing in Rwanda? Tell me everything. I want that part of the story. Oh, gosh. Um, oh, yeah. Now oh, you put Lord. it out there. Come on. Um, <laughs> I, I was doing, we were doing, um, it was post-genocide. It was, uh, we were filming. Oh. And, oh uh, yeah, post-genocide. How post was it? How far from the... Um, this was, like, almost probably, like, five to ten years later. Between okay. five and ten years later. So there's still a lot of yeah, yeah, a lot of, uh, I mean, it was, you got to see women, I was in villages up in the, up in the Burundi area, uh, where there were uh, women that had been raped, and you had these Mutilated. children now by, yeah. and, and it was, it was, I remember me uh, seeing one guy who was sort of like the, he was like the mayor of his area, and uh, he would have been what would have been considered a Tutsi that survived, right. and he said, it was like he's describing like Nazi Germany. It was like the yeah. whole, the whole country was like possessed with a demon. He yeah. said because people woke up after the three and a half months, and there was one guy. He said that was he was in full of blood and is with a machete, and he didn't realize how he got there. It was like they were just obsessed. It was like the mob mentality. And so, you know, when we talk about the insurrection, which I call it insurrection, I don't know what anybody else calls it, but what just, in that thing, that thing on the sixth. Yeah, that thing on the sixth. Uh, you know, in, yeah, in my in my hometown of DC, and it, I was like, it's, it's, I I simplify it. You know, it's driving me crazy. Ah, yeah. And you, we you. find all of these gentle titles for Nazis. These people are Nazis. Yes. Anybody that wants to do what they want to do, hello out there. If you want to do what they want to do, <laughs> Nazi, you're a freaking Nazi. Yes. They're not. And what yeah. you're describing to me in Rwanda, I saw when I was a little girl in Europe. I was 10 years old and I went to Europe to do a show. And my dad and I would walk every day to rehearsals. We were in Utrecht. And it, this is like how many years I'm talking about. Uh, uh, 50, uh, uh, 60, 1960. Okay. And there's still wreckage like you cannot believe. On our way to the rehearsal hall, mm -hmm. there was one side of the street was completely pristine and the other side of the street was dust. Yeah. Dust. 
and 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 these little old women would come out every morning and sweep their stoops the ones that still had a stoop right and, and the other side there was nothing yeah. and everybody coming towards me had a nose missing a leg missing an eye missing something missing yeah, yeah. and i and I said to my dad, what, what is, why is it like this? Right. And he said, it's from a war. I said, what's a war? You got to think of the yeah. timing, yeah. like you know, yeah. early 60s. Yeah. You're young. Yeah, you're nowhere young. near as sophisticated. You know, yeah. kids now know what that is. But I said, what's a war? He said, that's a really stupid thing that men do. Yes, it is. And that's, and that's, and the here thing. we are again. <laughs> Anthony. I don't know. Here I, we I, are again. <laughs> <laughs> How do you make it stop? How do you make it stop? You just like putting the genie back in the, put him back, put him back. It's like we got this mad genie that somebody rubbed the mad, magic lantern and we got this guy that was here for four years. Well, and, and but he had a lot of training, you know? Yeah. I don't know if anybody saw the magnificent Dave Chappelle routine that he did when he was on SNL. Oh, uh, yes. And a lot of people got very upset about it, but uh, and I know David. I've been meaning to uh, communicate with him to tell him how much that uh, um, that that monologue was one of the most brilliant monologues that was, I've. That heard. was awesome. Yeah. And and I've heard a lot of really brilliant <laughs> monologues yeah. from the baddest of yeah. the, from Lenny Bruce. To yeah. Mom Mabley, to Pig Meat Markham, to Slappy oh. White, to Red Fox, to I'm talking Richard Pryor, knew all of them, heard them all. This was this is like the top ten for me, and it, I've used it as my lit, litmus test for my white friends because the, my white friends that got upset from it, I just know okay. <laughs> You go over here now, because I thought you were over here, but oh, last you are not. So you go over here. And there were some black folks that got upset because he used the N-word. Right. But in essence, what he was saying is you got to walk in everybody's moccasins right. a little because of what I do and I'm uh, when I'm able to make a living, which hasn't been for a year now. Um, I go on the road, I travel all around the world. I meet people from all over the world. Right. And I see. If I go to a place more than once, then I'm checking out their history. I'm, I want to know how everything got to be the way it is. Mm. And, and because of what we're going through now, I'm just on a deep research of how we got the way we are. And it's really, it's, it's not very different from how Germany got the way it got. And it's not very different from the way that Rwanda got the way it got. Right. And it's based on the same principles of divide and conquer that have been used all throughout history, right. all throughout history. Yeah. And the thing that terrifies me about it and makes me think that Keanu Reeves actually is ruling the world in the matrix is because we keep doing all of this over and over and over and over and over and over again right. for the same reasons. And and it's it's the only thing that changes is fashion, which is why the queens have saved us every twenty years. Yeah. You know, we're doing the same nonsense, but at least we're wearing some fabulous drag. <laughs> that's right. I, uh, that's right. And have some beautiful architecture and marvelous aesthetics to to get us through. But we keep doing this same nonsense. Wow. And today is a scary day wow. uh, because we've had to bow to this fascism that permeates the air, not just in the United States, folks, all over the world, wow. all over the world. Wow. This is happening all over the world. And <clears throat> I roll back to saying that Trump got a lot of really, really brilliant uh, um, direction and instruction. Don't we call what white folks did to us 400 years ago kidnapping? Because that's what it was. We've been kidnapped. kidnapped. We are kidnapped victims. We yeah. are suffering from being kidnapped. And as my beautiful manager said one day, nothing's going to change until white folks admit what they have stolen. Yes. Ah, 
Words are important. How we describe these situations is important. We are kidnapped victims. We are dealing with people who, if they don't like shit, they blow it up and make it like they like it. Mm. If there's a mountain in my way, I blow it up. But it wasn't put there for you to blow up, you little son of a bitch. <laughs> it was put there for you to figure out how to mm. live with it mm. or mm. stay away from it because it's what bigger than you. Yeah. You heard it, folks. Final question that I keep asking, and people get like crickets. Why aren't we collecting our money and getting the hell out of here and leaving this to these assholes? Now, I had somebody say to me, my people have worked too hard for this. For what? For what? <sighs> if this was a personal relationship and you were with a man that treated you like this country treats black folks, would you stay? Would your mommy and daddy be okay with you staying with him? He's beating your ass every night, treats you like shit gives you some flowers the next day and says he won't do that anymore and then he does it again would you want your child to be with that person living with that person that's what black folks are doing with white folks we're living with some very savage people wow and we're not even thinking about leaving this place that shows you what a good job they did on our freaking heads and if we and i got news for you if we decided to collect our asses and get on a boat and get the fuck out of here, they try to burn the goddamn boat down. Because they don't want to see you do that either. <laughs> they don't want you to leave. They want you to stay here so they can torture you to death. Wow. Why are we staying here and asking ridiculous questions like, I love you, you never love me back. I don't stay with a motherfucker that don't love me like I love them. Right. I just don't. Why are we doing this as a people? I'm just asking. Now, I, I got on Clubhouse and I asked this question. It was We started laughing because everybody said kind of at the same time, well, we got no place to go. <laughs> so what are we, an officer and a gentleman here? What the shit? Well, that's, you know? well, we that... need to be, I'm sorry. I yeah. think as a people, we need to be planning an exit strategy from this bitch. Because well, if it's going like it's going, yeah. it's going to be wholesale slaughter because that's the way these people function. Oh, and Patty, if we, you, I'm you, sorry. You, no, but you, you you're saying something that I totally agree with you. I mean, is, we, we've talked we've talked <laughs> offline about you know other countries, Africa. I mean, matter of fact, the the president of Ghana has I was a just gonna say we've got an open invitation. invitation. We've got an invitation. An if open invitation. Yes, I mean, I have traveled to. Ghana, I mean, new world. Fuck yeah. it. Matter of fact, even in even in Nigeria now, they're I mean they're trying to get more African Americans to come there. In 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 in, in as far as this this um, um Rwanda has a great economy. It, it's doing well. They I want know. other people, especially of the from who are from, who are black from America, um, Kenya. I mean, you have more of a platform. One of the things that I remember when I first went to Africa, that was the first time no one called me <laughs> black. Okay. They never, I was not called a black, I was just called a man. You are a human being, exactly. Period. I was just, a, I was just another guy. One race, human one, race. I was it. I was, I mean, I, I mean, before, oh, Anthony Arnold, he's the, 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 he's a black videographer. He's a black singer. He's a black this. Mm -hmm. He's a black, black, mm -hmm. black. But I never heard it from yeah, my other white com. I mean, he's the white. He, he just, he just Bob. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I mean, but I'm the black guy. But when I went over there, he's like, oh, Mister, uh, you know, I'm, here's Mister Tony. They didn't. I was just a black guy. Yeah. It was the first time I was seeing seeing myself. When I go to the islands and see, uh, I was living in the islands. I have cousins in in, in Trinidad, yeah. and yeah. when I, when I'm just another black guy, I'm just yeah. I'm just I'm not I'm just another guy. Just not even another day. black guy. I'm just, just another guy. Day. You know, it's it's we uh, race is is a construct again of white men. Yeah. There is one race, it, I'm sorry, there's two, the human race and the rat race. Yeah. Other yeah. than that, they ain't no other race. They ain't no other race. We are, all, we are all the same. Tint came from moving around all over the world with different climates and different amounts of sun and pigmentation. Ain't yeah. got shit 
to do with anything. But now we have all been fit into these molds and we've all been lorded over by a very, very selfish leader, you know, history. And it's been very male dominated. And as my manager and I call it very dick driven, we call it double D cup (laughs) (laughs) bullshit because it's the testosterone, you know, drives all of this nonsense that, that everybody is forced to live under. And I just, like I say, if I'm being abused, I don't want to stay in that environment. And I, and I always question why black folks take this and why they don't get together and get the hell out of here. I'm, I'm planning on getting out of here. I'm, I'm going to go to Panama. Uh, Oh, I heard Panama's not. Yeah. Yeah, A lot of the reason I'm going there is because my goddaughter, my, my manager's daughter is my goddaughter. She's tremendously talented and insanely beautiful. And her grandmother was from Panama and she spent uh, the last three or four years that her grandmother was alive in Panama, taking care of her grandma. Wow. And uh, she's an amazing uh, young woman. And um, Nia, also her name is, is Nia. And um, so whenever I spoke to her when she was in Panama and she'd be talking, uh, taking care of her grandma, every time I spoke to her, she sounded like she was smoking the best shit in the world and she doesn't smoke shit. And I, <laughs> I was like, what, what are you doing? You always sound all blissed out over there. What's going on uh-huh. in Panama? She said the same thing you're saying. I'm yeah. a person here. I'm, I'm a human person. being. I'm not a black woman. Yes. I'm six feet tall and magnificent. She said, I'm not a six foot tall, magnificent black woman. Yeah. I'm a woman here. I'm all, yeah. And I want to be treated before I die just once. I want to be treated that way. Yeah. And so kind of we've been talking about it. And that and I think that's going to be my move. But I also have a tremendous love for uh, uh, for South Africa. It's just. Yeah. When I left there the first, I've been there four times in my life. And when I left there the first time, I literally did get on my knees and I kissed the ground because I felt like I was. I did the same thing when I was. And little children came yeah. up to me with their arms open. Strange kids. This is another thing yes. that blew away in South Africa. The, the babies. They yeah. just, they're, everybody loves everybody. You know, I know they've got shit going on too. I'm not saying that. But the general vibe you see a little kid in the street and they look up at you and they put their arms up and they hold you and they hug you and they just want to be one with the universe and you feel it everywhere you go and it's such a strange feeling when you grow up in this environment where you're constantly labeled with this label all the time that's constantly defining you and then suddenly you're allowed to be a person and it does something to your soul it 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 just, it blows your spirit up and it's a great feeling. And I'm at a point now in my life, <clears throat> I have fought the great fight a lot uh, through my life. And, and I'd probably be a lot further along in my life if I hadn't fought it the way I've fought it. Uh, but I like looking at myself in the mirror and saying, hey, hey, you fine thing. <laughs> and feeling good about what I'm doing in my life and with my life. So I've always, uh, I've never been afraid to, to speak my truth. And uh, hopefully I've, I've uh, investigated my truth sufficiently to know that it is the truth whenever possible. And, and um, the older I get, the more I find that there are just things I don't want to have to deal with at this point in my life. There are other things I would really like to have the luxury <coughs> to put my emphasis on my and my focus on georgia you're not just voting for you no you're voting for me too georgia i got you on my mind you have got a chance today to keep a you in usa oh georgia say can you see you could save my democracy oh georgia Georgia, you're not just voting for you. No, you're voting for me, too. I know you've got to be tired of washing hands and wearing masks. But you could save the planet's ass. Oh, Georgia, we're all waiting to see if you've left the Confederacy. Well, welcome to the 21st century. 
could sit around and mope and say, oh, what's the difference? Or you could just get out and vote, just two senators in blue. Georgia, you know what to do. Georgia, you're not just voting for you. No, you're voting for me too. to fight another day just for now let's sing along oh georgia put love back in the world who better than a fine southern girl well georgia come on and give it a whirl cause you're voting for me too yes you're voting for me too make january 5th a belated christmas give georgia Georgia, you know what to do. You can slow down the Grim Reaper. Huh, you should vote, it'll be cheaper. Georgia, you know what to do. Cure non-conspiracies. Vote that crap away from me. Georgia, you know what, you know what to do. So that's one of the reasons that I got into writing what I'm writing now, writing the way I'm writing now, which is very political and um, exploring. One of the things that kept me from writing for a very long time is I have a tendency to write in a very structured, classic way, classical way. And I got kind of embarrassed about it because I wanted to be more fluid and more hip and more the way music is now. And um, I became intimidated about it. <clears throat> but like I said, the whole thing that happened in Georgia made me say, you know, why can't I write a song like uh, When I'm 64, like the Beatles? When they wrote that song, that's, that song is like an old vaudevillian tune. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. And nobody was making that kind of no, music. Yeah, nobody. When, when Stevie did, uh, um, did half of what Stevie did, nobody else was doing in the world. It was just about it went with what he was trying to say. So I got that, I had to get that yoke off of me because I carried that for a long time as a writer. And I just said, you know, screw it. I'm just going to write what... <laughs> what the hell you want to write Let about? Let us see told me this great story. Let us see told me this great story one day. <laughs> she was in her church choir and there was a little old lady in the church choir and everybody knew her and loved her. She was not very good. Mm. And she had, you know, old lady church vibrato. Oh, ooh, yeah. Ooh, ooh, they had a new conductor and the conductor was not playing she was serious and they were singing and this woman's voice kept sticking out and it was wrong so she started going through each section okay let me hear the altos you know let me hear the sopranos and let me hear the, and she finally got to this woman's section and she was sticking out and she was really bad and, and so the conductor said, you know, gently to her, because she's elderly and she didn't, you know, she said, um, you're out of tune. Um, and I don't know what to say to you to get you in tune, but it's really conflicting and it's loud. And it, could you take it down? And she said, look, lady, I don't know what I'm doing. I just sings what comes out. <laughs> <laughs> Things what comes out. That's where I'm at at this point. <laughs> you say, yeah, and that's, and that's what you got to do. I mean, and and uh, yeah, so I started writing like that. You know, yeah, with that mentality. you got to write like that. You got to. Yeah. I'm writing now, and it's freed me up. And I'm writing in all different kinds. And another thing that kind of freed me up a little bit was when I went to see Hamilton. I loved the fact that each song represented whatever the song was about. If it had a Latin, a lyric that had kind of a Latin groove to it, he would go Latin with it. If it was pop, he'd go pop. It was, and I just said, this is how I'm going to do this. I'm going to stop putting blinders on and forcing myself into a, a box that I'm just, I'm doing this to myself. Nobody's asking me <laughs> to do mm -hmm. this. Right. And as soon as I did that, I started writing all over the place, all different kinds that's of things. I'm, I'm going to send you um, the the the, the Georgia tune, Great. and I'm going to say the other tune that I did that we couldn't get a video for because it's made me change my whole 
thinking about this project because I'm really trying to put it together like a theater piece, ultimately. Right that we will do both ways. We'll do it as, as a video and we'll do it as a, uh, as a live piece if we're able to ever get back to that level. But um, it's, it's really, and I think it's a combination because I've written some, some spoken word stuff um, and just uh, also just talking about what I've gone through during this time and what I've learned from it and what, uh, I keep waiting to, to get uh, what I call COVID crazy from being in quarantine for so long, and it's just not happening. But I know that a lot of it has to do with my personality because I really, really love my solitude. I really oh, do. You and me both. <laughs> and it's I, not. I can live in this world I, now. It's not that I that I dislike people. I love people. Probably yeah. love them too much. And when I'm with people, I'm with people. Right. But when I'm done, I must be alone and I must regroup and I must recharge. And I can't do that around people. I do a concert for 30,000 people and they're screaming and they love me and it's wonderful. I gotta be able to get in at, at peace with myself when I'm away from that, because that doesn't happen all the time, nor should it, nor can it. So I have to, I have to create balance from that because that's not reality. Right. The only way that I can obtain that balance is to get away from folks and chill and, and, and reacquaint myself with my, I must admit my favorite person, me. <laughs> oh, look, look, we're, we're, uh, you're born one day before, uh, your, your, birth, say, is that your birthday is <laughs> on the 10th. I'm on the 11th. We're both Leo's. Oh, and you're on Madonna. Madonna's yeah. birthday. She's, she's on the 11th. Now, and yeah. one thing that I was I learned about with Leos that were born in our time frame, you won that right. segment. Yeah. It, it says that we 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 don't mind being in front of a crowd, but we don't <laughs> like being in a crowd all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, and I was like, uh, before, but that's true. That's, that's true. true. That's I, I was like, you, you're a Leo and you were born in this time. You don't like being, you like being in front, as long as they're out there. But once you step down from the stage and they start, oh God, get away from me. Oh no, uh, too many people, you know? And so, so we, we're like lions. What do lions do? They, they right? eat, they sleep. And they, you know, <laughs> they sleep under the, I remember when I was in Kenya, we saw lions, oh, you know, the lions over there by themselves. As long as I'm full, I don't have to be running. <laughs> what, you know, uh, as long as you eat, I don't have to eat for a week. I'm chilling. <laughs> I'm chilling. I mean, so Patty's like this. I don't, I'm just going to be chilling. I'm eating and I'm chilling. And I'm chilling. <laughs> That's it. And I love to cook too. So that's like, that's me. Hey. I've been in heaven over here just cooking stuff. As a matter of fact, I was like, I gotta find a way to get my leftovers to somebody that needs some food because I eat like a bird. You yeah, know, you I like, had you like me. I, mean, I like, I like, I mean, see, I like, I see, you're, you're a vegetarian like me. I mean, it's like uh, not too many places where I can get down. See, I'm in South Carolina in Anderson. Right. Oh, no, no, no. It's, that's rough. It's, it's rough. Know, it's I, well, I didn't go vegan. I went vegetarian. I mean, I'm vegetarian. I'm, I'm vegetarian. Yeah, yeah, me too, because I travel too much. And yeah. there's just places you cannot get anything that doesn't have parents or eyes. Yeah. So you can always get an egg somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know? And a lot of times if I'm traveling someplace where I know it's going to be, I started a long time ago, I started bringing my food with me. I have foods that I carry with me on the road that I know will sustain. I carry a cooler. So, you know, I got like hard boiled eggs and cheese and those kinds of Dairy saves me because if I, it's very difficult to travel and be a vegan. It's, it's no, oh yeah, yeah, it is hard. Yeah, Not it where is. I travel. I'm in Japan. Yeah. I'm, I'm in Africa, yeah. Eastern Europe. You know, it, it's that ain't gonna happen. So yeah. I had to find the healthiest way to do that. When I I started, I just realized yesterday that I've been doing this for three years now. I didn't even realize I've been doing it that long. But when I um. I really started it so that I could sustain myself better on the road. Uh, I found that when I eliminated those things from my diet, I slept better. I got to bed earlier. I woke up, felt lighter, felt better. And it just really worked for me with my traveling schedule. 
and and also I was getting older and I realized that there were certain foods that I wasn't digesting as well as I used to before. And so maybe I need it. Maybe this is God's way of telling me not to, <laughs> to eat that shit right now. So that's what I did. And it really, 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 really helped me a lot, a lot. To, but I recommend it highly to anybody that's out there that, that's getting a little bit older and wants to lighten up on their diet. And it's just kind of a more colorful way to eat you know i look yeah. at my plate and i've got all these beautiful colors and vegetables and flavors and it's i find it's more interesting than eating meat all the time yeah well and actually i found i, I taste can't the food anymore. when i took out food i mean the the the, the meat out of stews and all right taste i mean it's like i can literally taste what flavor vegetables really taste like exactly because something with exactly. meat takes away certain things in the yeah. whether it's chicken beef or whatever it is yep. and so i was like yeah this i can taste this this has a really good taste to it a beautiful veggie going on the veggie it. going on so oh, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm with you there <laughs> I do a lot of topical and political stuff between the music that I do. Mm -hmm. And in Europe, the show that I do is generally uh, with symphony orchestras, and it's a tribute to Ella Fitzgerald. And it's really kind of like a one-woman show. It's more like a theater piece, and it has dialogue between the songs. And the music is very Great American Songbook, because Ella was maybe... Right greatest representer of the great American songbook in history. Right. So you've got all these wonderful Cole Porter lyrics and Gershwin lyrics and, the, right. and, and all of them are as timeless as anything yeah. could possibly be. They all totally relate to everything that's going on now because they were either a great album. Uh, yeah, you've done an album on, on that, right? Um, you have an album based on that, right? Well, the, yeah. on, on Gershwin, yeah. On Gershwin. I actually, yeah, I did two two projects um, kind of around the whole world of Ella. The first one was a tribute to Ella that I got a, a Grammy Brandy. nomination yes. for. And that, uh, uh, that, that was called for, That's Called for Ella. And then after that, I did um, the Gershwin, the Avant Gershwin album. But it all kind of came from a, a relationship with Ella. And through that time, I created a show that became very popular, that's been very popular in Europe and in Asia. And um, <clears throat> as I said, it's it's with symphony orchestras. So between the songs, I'm talking about um, I talk to the audience about things that are going on where they live, and I and I'm able to do that because I always get wherever I'm going the night before. I turn on the TV, I look at the advertising, I read the local papers as much as I can, uh, or or the local uh, expat paper, and um, you know go online and get get the rhythm and then I always ask whoever's taking me around the the, the person that was like you were over at Howard taking people around yeah. <laughs> and I, I picked their brain on the way to the venue to the sound check well what's yeah. going on here da, 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 da. I get a little bit of that and that goes in between the songs right so that the audience knows that I know that that they know <laughs> and it creates a, a different kind of a relationship so that's the way I'm used to working. And that teaches you so much about people around the world.
How did you connect with Ella? And what was your relationship well, like? Um, God, you know, I don't have a, any short story. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. I'm laughing at myself. I don't have one freaking short story in my entire life. Um, it goes, I've been doing this since I'm four years old professionally. Right. And, um, and Dinah Washington uh, discovered me at the Apollo Theater because I went with my parents backstage to meet her at the Apollo back in the days when they used to do six shows a day. We went between one of her shows uh, and my dad had worked with Ella when he was playing trombone and he hadn't seen her for years, but they were dear friends. And so, and he wasn't married when he worked for her. And so he wanted to introduce Dinah to his family. And um, so we went backstage very long story short, she dared me to go out and sing on stage. I did. Uh, when I finished singing on stage, I ran into the arms of a guy that was kneeling with his open arms. And he picked me up and spun me around and took me out to my parents who were standing in the hall in complete shock because I had done this little performance. And he begged them to let me appear on his show the next week. And, uh, they asked me what I wanted to do. And I, of course, wanted to do that. And the guy was Sammy Davis Jr. And so I kind of went from Dinah to Sammy. And then Dinah overheard that conversation and said, what are you doing with my goddaughter? She was not my godmother a few minutes before. <laughs> <laughs> but 
in the, in the black neighborhood that we get these adopted black grandmothers exactly. and everybody godmothers and everything i know yeah so sammy got kicked to the curb and but i did do his show the next week but dinah did make me her goddaughter and then the next person she took me to meet was a guy that was playing trumpet and writing arrangements for her that was that had just moved uh to new york with a with a very young wife and a very new baby in a high chair and we went to his basement apartment to set some keys for some songs that Dinah and I were going to sing together and uh and he and we did that and and she said this is my goddaughter and he, and he said no she's my goddaughter too and that Quincy the cue kind of like you know the, the the this amazing trilogy of people got me started in in the business so while all of that's happening, uh, I'm growing up in a little fishing farming community called Bayshore in Bayshore, Long Island. And, um, and my dad isn't playing trombone professionally anymore. He's practicing every day, but he doesn't play anymore because now he works at the post office okay. and living all the way out in Long Island because my mother, um, when she was working as a waitress, saved up her tip money and bought herself a little summer cottage in this crazy place called Bay Shore. She had a friend uh, that, that because uh, she was living in Harlem at the time, that had a house there. And he said, why don't you come and visit in the summer? And she did, and she loved it. And um, so she ended up uh, buying this little house and she met my dad on a Monday and they got married the next Sunday. And uh, they were living in Harlem for about a year before they had me. And then, uh, and they were very poor and they decided they'd rather be poor in a little summer cottage in Bayshore than in an apartment in Manhattan. So they got on the back of a watermelon truck and went to the uh, house in Bayshore. And every weekend, because my mother grew up in Harlem, she had to see her peeps. Mm. And as soon as my parents were able to afford a car, we would go in every Sunday to Harlem. We would go to Abyssinian Baptist Church in the morning yeah. and hear from Clayton Powell, senior. This is before Junior. Junior oh. came, saw oh. him too. Yeah. But and and you'd hear everybody from Mahalia Jackson to Clara Ward singers to you know it was just that was in the morning. And then we would go to uh, to Central Park and have a picnic because my mother would always pack a lunch because my parents couldn't afford to go to a restaurant. So I always thought we owned this rock in Harlem in Central Park. And then we would go from there to the Apollo and see whoever was doing a show there. So that's how I came to meet Dinah in the first place. Wow. So we were going back and forth between Bayshore, this fishing farming town, and you know, right in the middle of all of this uh, amazing, uh, brilliant African-American spirit that was exploding in Harlem at that time. And it was a wild dichotomy. <laughs> I bet. Oh. And, it, and it represented my entire life, which has always been a wild dichotomy. And while that's going on, I've got a dad who's practicing his instrument every day. And, and, and my parents worked split shifts so that one of them could always be with me and they would not have to hire a babysitter. And so I would spend my days because my dad worked nights. I spent my days with my dad uh, practicing his horn and showing me everything about music. And when he wasn't playing himself, he was playing all kinds of music and he listened to everything. I'm talking from uh, military drum and <laughs> bugle corps competition records to Tito Puente, wow. to uh, Mom's uh, Big Mama Thornton, to uh, uh, just just everything, mild everything, whatever anybody was doing, he listened to it, and and it became the basis and foundation of his relationship to Quincy. Quincy and my dad were very close. My dad was like Quincy's older brother, oh. and. And a lot of that relationship was based around their love of all kinds of music. And when Quincy started working for Mercury Records, he would send stuff over 
that they were getting ready to put out. We would get all these cool records before they would come out on the market. I remember him sending uh, the soundtrack from West Side Story and, mm. and Bob Dylan's first album. And, and, and hearing those things, you know, so this was the kind of music I was growing up on as a kid. And a lot of that music, my long-winded answer, was Ella. So Ella became, all of it became an influence. But Ella particularly for me when I was a kid, because there was just something about the sound of her voice that fascinated me. Just her vibrato, just mm. the tone of her vibrato, the rhythm of it. The, the, the quiver of it, the place that it's set in, in my ear was always this most wonderful place. So I always wanted to not sound like her, but be able to do whatever that was with what equipment I had. Right. And, and so I think it was always kind of like a little seed that was planted in the back of my mind. And I did not get around to doing her repertoire until many, many, many years later. And one of the driving forces for that was Rosemary Clooney, who had through the years become a mentor to me. And it, it, <laughs> we were standing in, a, in, a, in the hallway where all the dressing rooms are at Lincoln, at Avery Fisher Hall. Mm -hmm. And we were there for a celebration of Lena Horne's 80th birthday. And um, I was going on. I was the last thing on the show before they brought Lena uh, out okay. to congratulate her and for her to, of course, sing something that would rock the world for the, <laughs> for the next wow. 80 years. She was ridiculous. But anyway, so yeah. I'm standing backstage with Rosemary because Rosemary had before everybody in the world was on this show, this tribute to, to Lena. And Rosemary was on the show. And I hadn't seen Rosemary for a very long time. So we're commiserating in the hall. And and, um, and I was, I think I was coming off of How Do You Keep the Music Playing. I was I was going through a, oh, yes, a, nice, a nice little moment there, you know, with the hit records and all of that stuff. Very much in the pop field. And Rosemary said to me, that's great and that's wonderful now, but that you can't take to the grave. You have to sing the Great American Songbook and you are now the heir apparent. I said, well, no, you got Natalie, you got that and I'm naming names. She said, she took her fingers and poked my chest and said, you are the heir apparent. You need to know this repertoire. This will take you through the rest of your life. I know of what I speak. And I said, okay, Rosemary. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and with that, I fought to do the Real Me album, which was a fight because nobody wanted me to sing that kind of music. And- um, Talking and about the I, record company? No, the record company was not feeling it. And I went in and demoed about 20 songs that were kind of in that genre. The idea was to take that music and do it my way. And so I went in with, um, oh, this is terrible. I've just drawn a blank. It'll come back to me in a second. Uh, but just I just did piano vocals. And I had a meeting with Lenny and I um, played him the piano vocals and I said this is this is what I want to do on my next album and <laughs> he was sitting at his desk and he after he had heard the first two or three songs he slid under his he literally physically slid under his desk and I was kind of looking down when I went to talk to him because <laughs> mm. he stopped listening after the third song and I figured it was because he didn't like it and I was looking down when I looked up to say uh Lenny you know this is what I want to do he just kind of like waved his hand he said go make the record <laughs> wow go make the freaking record okay yeah. i get it. okay i get it i didn't know i didn't know you did that stuff i said that's the stuff i started out doing the stuff i'm doing now has nothing to do with what i do <laughs> right right so and and that's really kind of what rosemary was saying to me this the, this stuff uh, i know this has longevity because it's kept me alive this long 
you know, mm. and and she was part of the uh, of the genre uh, of the artists that that catapulted that genre to a very 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 high level, you know, and and um, you know she she introduced she made a lot of music from that era classic. And it served her well. And she knew that it had legs. And she knew that I was getting older and I wasn't going to be able to carry the mantle of whatever I had done in my youth. I was going to have to use another chop. And she knew I had it because I, had, I used to do a, a fundraiser with Rosemary every year. She used to do a fundraiser the night before the Academy Awards on the stage of the Oscars with the Oscar Orchestra. Right. And everybody in Hollywood performed on this show. And it was a fundraising for a hospital that she was aligned with. And um, every year she would ask everybody to do different tunes. And she would pick a tune for me every year. And it was always a tribute. The show, the, the um, theme of the show was uh, singers for songwriters. And mm. so they would honor five uh, composers, um, three alive and one posthumous. And so the composers would be sitting in the front row and you'd be singing anything from anything. And uh, I, um, when Julie Stein, God rest his heart, uh, was still with us, uh, they honored him one year and um, uh, Rosemary had me sing, uh, I think I sang uh, Don't Rain on My Parade or something like that. And he was sitting there and he loved it. And he came back after the show. And I think I did every tribute for Julie Stein for the rest of his life, which was like maybe four or five more years. I kind of became his go-to girl um, because she always had these magnificent composers that were still alive sitting in the audience. And a lot of them did not know who I was. They knew, you know, Bob Hope opened the show. Right. Ella was the show every right. year these were the people they knew more because it was like from their genre. So they weren't that familiar with me. I remember one year Rosemary said, I got to get somebody in here that's under a hundred years old. Can you help me with this? You're, you're the youngest person on the show. I said, yeah, but you've got like the biggest star. She said, eh, eh. she said, put something together. What we've got, we're honoring Michelle Legrand this year. Just tell me who you think, bring me, bring me your people. I said, well, Michelle Legrand. I mean, I just want to hear Michael McDonald sing the windmills of your mind before I die. She said, great, go get him. So I got, I got on the phone and called Michael and he was like, yeah, okay. I, yeah, I'll do it. Hey. <laughs> and of course he killed it. Oh, wow. Like a circle in a circle. <laughs> Come on. Like a wheel within a wheel. I mean, it was ridiculous. And wow. Michelle, Michelle died. He was just quelling, you know. Wow. The show is over, and Michelle comes backstage. Michael has no idea who he is, and Michelle goes over to him and says, oh, it was wonderful. Oh, my God, the way you sing my song. And, and Michael didn't know who he was. He's like, yeah, okay, fine. And he, <laughs> and he couldn't understand through Michelle's accent. Wow. <laughs> and about 10 minutes later, he came over to me. He said, this really weird French guy came just came over to me and he was raving about something. I said, that's Michelle Legrand. You were singing his song. He said, oh my God, where is he? Oh. <laughs> and he went running around looking for Michelle. But I mean, so that was how I kind of got into that whole world of doing that kind of music with those kinds of composers. And as I said, I got to meet Ella. Uh, we got a little standing joke um, because after the second year, uh, every time we would do it, we would get introduced, inevitably. You know, whoever was working backstage would come over and say, oh, by the, Patty, have you ever met Ella? Oh, no, th this is the first time. No, I would love to meet Ella. Are you kidding? And so we were introduced. On the next Force Report, Patty Austin talks about her friendship with Michael Jackson, Luther Vandross, and her godfather. Quincy Jones. All this and more on the next Force Report. <laughs>